Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, living the eternal way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join the discussion, email us at yogahour at unity.fm. Now, here's your host, Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, our time to open our hearts and our minds to the infinite. I'm Ellen Grace O'Brien, and I'll be sharing with you today some insights and practices from the spiritual path of yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization. Yoga is a Sanskrit term, of course, that's familiar to many people today, but not often in its fullest sense, understanding the underlying philosophy of oneness, union, or unity, which is the core meaning of the word that refers to bringing our ability to bring our attention and our awareness um, to consciously rest in our essential spiritual nature. Uh, in in that way, being restored to our original wholeness. So yoga is also called self-realization, knowing this truth of what we are, and then, of course, being able to live in harmony with it. And today we have a real treat in terms of thinking about harmonious living and how we can develop our minds and our brains um, to be in support of that. Our topic is to make Big changes start with just one thing, and I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen, a neuropsychologist and the author of Buddhist Brain. Um, he's joining us uh, to look at how the small steps we take with a daily practice can change the brain, reduce stress, and bring greater resilience resilience and happiness and he has a new book out called just one thing developing a buddha brain one simple practice at a time so that's what we're going to be looking at dr hansen is a neuropsychologist um, founder of the wellspring institute for neuroscience and contemplative wisdom and he's an affiliate of the greater good science center at uc berkeley he's been an invited speaker at oxford stanford and harvard universities and has taught meditation in centers worldwide. You can visit his website, Rick Hansen, that's H-A-N-S-O-N dot net, for um, more information and some valuable resources. Welcome, Rick. I'm so delighted that you're here with us today on the Yoga Hour. Oh, Ellen, it's a pleasure. Very happy to be here and with everyone who's listening. Thank you. Um, before we dive into our conversation about practices let's just take a moment to practice <laughs> so Great. a little centering meditation let's intentionally open our hearts and our minds to divine omnipresence, considering that there is one reality, that it's called by many names, 
but it is the singular that that is the support, the substance of all that is. And in a practical way, what that means for us as we pause for a moment is our ability to experience that right here, right now, right where we are, this omnipresent reality is, is here, is now, as support for our very life and being. So breathing into that sense of presence, we can feel the fullness of it. Breathing out, we can let go of the idea of being separate somehow on our own, lacking resources. So breathing in, feeling connected to all that is, and with that, the profound experience of support. Breathing out, letting go of stress, tension. become quiet, we can become aware that we are witnessing, we have the ability to witness our thoughts and our feelings as well as all that goes on around us, and our ability to occupy that, that conscious witness dance, brings strength, groundedness, clarity, and peace. We can touch the peace that is within us. So now, let's just feel that we gather up the peace that is within us, and we let it pervade our minds, the mental field, and our physical body. And let's agree to touch that peace throughout our day today and know that it can overflow as a blessing for ourselves and for everyone that we meet. Rick, I'm really delighted um, that you're joining us this morning. I've been enjoying your book, Just One Thing, that um, while you have written it in such a simple and friendly way, um, very user-friendly, as we would say today, um, it's also, of course, quite profound, you know, how we really can um, make some profound changes by doing just one one thing, and um, in, in your, you're talking about our ability to change our brains, change our brains, change our minds, change our lives, you know, in some very simple ways, and um, you've used the term Buddha brain in introducing these practices that we can cultivate and develop a Buddha brain, so let's start with what did you mean by that? Okay, well, let me take this in two parts, all right, and while uh, I have, uh, I'm not a, an official yoga teacher, I do have some familiarity with that uh, territory. And as you know better than I, and probably many listeners know better than I, uh, the word yoga refers to union, you know, fundamentally a kind of yoking, if you will, a coming together. And if people really actually take into account what it means to be embodied, to be a body, to be in union with the body, to be in union with nature broadly, and to be in union with time, uh, as the body has been shaped by 3.5 billion years of evolution, 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system alone. Well, if, if we're truly embodied, we really need to open up to the implications of how the causes, moment to moment, 
of our experience, our very everyday thoughts and feelings, you know, whether we get stressed out or we feel at peace, whether we get irritated with other people or bless them, uh, how we feel about ourselves, whether we're critical to ourselves or kind to ourselves, the causes of those moments of experience, which we deeply care about, which altogether build a life and also make us affect other people in ways that help or hurt them. Well, the causes of those thoughts and feelings and actions and so forth are deeply rooted in our own bodies, in our own biology, and fundamentally in our brain and nervous system. And so with modern science, as we begin to understand the three pounds of tofu inside the coconut, as it were, inside our head, as we begin to understand what's actually going on there, which is just marvelous, we can then begin to deliberately encourage certain processes inside our own brains. And by encouraging those processes inside our own brains, we can build up the causes and conditions of unconditional happiness, love, and inner peace. So if you think about a Buddha brain, the Buddha did not claim any metaphysical or supernatural powers. He basically said, look, I'm really deeply engaged in practice. He was a yogi uh, in his time, as you well know, and practicing the yogic arts um, of his own time. And through his own efforts, he gradually transformed himself. He didn't know that if he's changing his mind, he must also fundamentally be changing his brain. If he's changing the craving that leads to suffering and and if he's uprooting greed and hatred and delusion in his mind, he must also somehow be making changes as well in his brain. He didn't understand, no one knew then, what those changes could be. But today, we're beginning to have some, some good guesses about them. And so my book, Buddha's Brain, was about how can we translate the good guesses now that are coming out of science and psychology and then inform them with profound Mm -hmm. contemplative wisdom into kind of a practical toolbox that Mm -hmm. an individual could use to use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better. Yeah, and, you know, today, you know, we have this benefit of actually um, through the... um, progression of science and our ability to to measure things going on in the brain we actually can can see a feedback loop <laughs> that on the physical level that you know we were not able to see before um that is so helpful um you know uh, when i when i read through your book you know so much of it um you know it's all very helpful and much of it is about encouraging us to um create a positive bias i'll put it that way that that you know to mm-hmm. overcome in other words um kind of an an inherited negative bias of our biology you know the the way in which we're sort of pre-programmed <laughs> from the factory right to to look for threat and yeah. um you know how that can just um become a, a habitual pattern and so you know many of the exercises um are are about how to um develop a more positive climate um Tell us a little bit about this negativity bias and, and, you know, how changing it can make such a difference. Right. Well, in a sense, what the great opportunity here is that everyone can develop a Buddha brain. I mean, we're all at different stages in that process, right? And it's not just for Buddhists, right? Because we all have a human brain, you know. In other words, if you think of it, what kind? Um, the opportunity is to, is to have a brain in which there there really isn't the basis for any kind of you know, fear or anger, there's no basis for any disappointment or frustration, and there's no basis for any envy or loneliness or heartache. There's no basis for any of that. And instead, it's replaced fundamentally by inner peace, by contentment, and by love. So that's the opportunity for us all, and we need to practice. That's why what, for example, you do is so important, because you know, while it's true that when we feel deeply that our needs are met, the body and brain um, moves out of a fight-or-flight state and comes home to its resting state. I call it the responsive mode of the brain, the green zone, basically. We Mm -hmm. come home to green, as it were. We're rested. We're at peace. We're still engaged with life. We're raising children. We're running around. You know what I mean? We're doing too much. Mm -hmm. We're talking too fast, as I probably am right now. But, you know, we're we're not, there's no underlying quality of craving uh, that's generative of suffering. Okay. On the other hand, we also have a body and brain, 
speaking of embodiment, that's incredibly vulnerable to being driven out of the green zone into the red zone, the reactive mode of the brain, the fight or flight, uh, deficit and disturbance-based state of the brain. Um, in which we then uh, feel frightened and angry, frustrated and disappointed, and envious, lonely, and, and ashamed. And so the brain has a negativity bias. So scientists call it that. I call it like it's like Velcro for the negative, but Teflon for the positive. And the important thing, and that shows up in lots and lots of ways. For example, um, good long-term relationships typically need at least five positive interactions for a single negative one or the way that memory-making works as you learn from life, as you try to grow on the path of awakening awakening or or healing. As you try to do that, the problem is that negative experiences get turned into neural structure immediately. Once burned, twice shy. You know, never forget. Whereas positive experiences, including important learning experiences at the end of a yoga set or, or just in life or in contemplation or reading or, you know, learning how to be a better partner to your partner or whatever, Those kinds of positive learnings, the brain is incredibly inefficient at turning them into neural structure, at learning from them. In other words, the brain is very good at learning from the bad, but bad at learning from the good. And so that's where the second chapter in the book, Just One Thing, you know, these 52 little practices, as you pointed out, um, the second practice is on taking in the good. Because if we just take the extra 10 seconds, 10 or 20 seconds, to stay with that positive experience, we can force our brain to learn from it, force it in a very good and kind way to ourselves. And that gives us many opportunities, half a dozen or more times a day, 10 or 20 or 30 seconds at a time. It's not a big deal. But little things add up to huge things over time. Mm -hmm. And just to to reinforce the experiences that are actually happening, you know, that, you know, in any given day, I think it's true that there are many more positive experiences than, you know, so-called negative ones. But um, due to conditioning and due to the way that, as you've described, that the brain works, um, our inclination is for the negative ones to stand out, right? (laughs) So. That's right. And that's because they help us survive. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you say, it helps to bring it down to something simple, you know, like carrots and sticks, right? Okay, so our ancient ancestors needed to get carrots, avoid sticks. If you don't get a carrot today, you'll have a chance to win tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, whap, no more carrots mm-hmm. forever. Rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Right? And so, yeah, you can see it showing up in daily life. And in a weird way, it's liberating to realize, wow, my crankiness is natural, you know? And also, we're very shaped by life experiences. I think a handful of people have a wholly benign childhood. My wife did, actually. It's amazing, you know? But most people don't. Mm-hmm. And we learned the brain, you know, the brain is designed to be changed by experiences, one way or another. And that's why uh, we can be a good friend to ourselves helping our experiences, you know, change our brain for the better, including by just taking in the good. And, you know, yoga practice and all the mindfulness practices are so helpful um, along this uh, line. I think initially, and I remember for myself, this was one of the first awarenesses that came to me that you know i just didn't i didn't know it was going on and and by that i i mean that this continual negative bias towards things and uh, when i first started practicing one of the first awarenesses that came was that that was my viewpoint you know if and an example would be you know if the whole room was you know beautifully uh cleaned i would notice the one spot on the carpet. Yes. Right. And, um, and you know, in, in, in some ways that can be a strength because, you know, then, then you have that awareness and, you know, something you can do. But what I became aware of as the weakness was that if our awareness continually goes to that spot on the carpet, then, of course, that contributes to um, unhappiness, right? <laughs> and the crankiness you mentioned. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly right. And it ripples out to other people. And I guess I'm sure we've all had the experience on our side of the street. We're in a relationship, home or work, family, what have you. And um, we know that we're doing 20 things, let's say, in a day or in a week or a relationship toward our partner. And 10 were, you know, 
absolutely positive, nine were neutral, maybe one was irritable or negative or cranky. What's the one thing that other person fastens on and just gets us on? It's the one negative. And how does that make us feel? Well, guess what? Look around. We're, we're tending to do that to others, too. Uh, you know, one, one thing that's happened for me in, in learning all this, you know, kind of hardcore evolutionary neuropsychology, whatever, is that it's made me pay much more attention to how vulnerable I am to negative experiences and how vulnerable I am to fear. Because, you know, we evolved to be very nervous and fearful because overconfident, you know, lizards, mice, and monkeys and, you know, Stone Age people did not survive and pass on their genes. So, um, and it's made me much more sensitive and in a way tender with regard to how other people are very vulnerable to negative experiences and to the power of fear. I don't walk on eggshells. People know me with that, you know, straightforward and direct. But, uh, boy, we just you realize that we just don't need to be a bad day for other people. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can still stick up for yourself. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put it. So when we come back from the break, let's talk about some of those ways that you're suggesting that we can train our brains um, for better self-care and better life experience. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, and our guest today is Dr. Rick Hansen, author of Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. We'll be right back with you. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you'll give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the love offerings of listeners to continue operating and expand its outreach. Please visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you. Are we nearing the end of the world? Reading the book of Revelation, you might think so, and it doesn't end well. But is it possible that the Bible's darkest story is a positive tale? Author Ed Townley, host of the Unity Online radio show, The Bible Alive, thinks so. A Bible enthusiast, Townley focuses on the metaphysical meanings rather than the literal text. In Kingdom Come, new from Unity Books, Townley takes a fresh approach to Revelation. The kingdom, Townley explains, doesn't await us in the afterlife. It's ours to experience today, as we learn to find the good even in our darkest challenges. Explore Revelation in a new light. Order the book Kingdom Come online today at unitybooks.org. Does the idea of being a vegetarian or a vegan intrigue you? Is it something you've pondered? Listen each week as Victoria Moran, author of Main Street Vegan, shows you how to make the shift to a sustainable lifestyle for both you and the planet. Each week you'll learn about the latest on the vegan life. It's not just for celebrities and moguls, but for people just like you who want to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Guests will range from unity ministers to vegan authors, activists, physicians, chefs, and even some of those glittery celebs. There'll be recipes, ideas, tips for going vegan at your own pace, and ways to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time for Main Street Vegan, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to the Yoga Hour. 
Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, and I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen. And in this segment, we're going to take a look at what it is that we do to train our brains for better self-care, how to enjoy life more fully and build on our strengths. Uh, many spiritual traditions teach that uh, enjoying life is important. And, um, you know, people don't always bring that perspective to the spiritual life. Um, you know, sometimes people think that the religious or spiritual life is about uh, austerity and suffering, but in reality, without enjoyment, uh, we won't get very far. So um, the Vedas actually have um, kama or pleasure as one of the four main goals in life, uh, essentials, one of the four main essentials. So besides living with purpose, dharma, uh, artha, being able to um, have the means that we need to fulfill our destinies, um, pleasure or kama is, is, is considered essential. And, um, and your, your book includes that, which is, you know, it makes me really happy. I have pleasure just reading about it. So, <laughs> so let's start with that. Um, from a practical viewpoint, why is that important? Well, it's funny to think about it. It actually has profound implications. In other words, um, most things that feel good are good. In other words, Mother Nature wants us to like drinking water when we're thirsty. She wants us to like hugging people who love us and we love. Right? She wants us to have the relief of taking the hand off the hot stove, as it were. And most things that feel bad are bad. They, um, getting angry is not good for us. Uh, we evolved, uh, and this is a really important point, so I'm going to take a moment here. We evolved to have the capacity to go through brief bursts of fight or flight. All right? And then the natural template, the blueprint, is to have long periods of recovery. In other words, if you think about the, the classic book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, uh, most episodes of stress in the wild end quickly, one way or another. In other words, uh, that one zebra either escapes or gets nailed, alas, and the rest of the zebras go back to just eating grass. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, modern life doesn't let us do that for, unless we really practice yoga, for example, routinely, or other sorts of things that, that stand against the stream, as it were. But normally, most people are experiencing mild to moderate uh, bursts of stress chronically all day long with no opportunity for recovery. So they're experiencing, they're in the red zone, mildly to moderately, most of every day. And then to get out of the red zone, they overindulge, they drink too much, or they stay up too late, or they watch too much TV, or whatever it is that they do. And then, you know, that kind of exhausts them because it doesn't really feed their soul, feed their inner being. And then they do the same thing the next day. So um, that's why I think it's really important to do practices where we step out, you know, of the stream, as it were, feed ourselves deeply, um, and then um, it changes. It gives us a kind of momentum that alters how we actually experience the day, you know, in our regular life. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as we look at this um you know, tendency to, you know, have a, a negative bias um, to carry stress around with us, you know, after a stressful experience, you know, to have that impact and then have it remain with us. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about the, the practice in, in yoga, um, which tells us to cultivate the opposite, and, um, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about that as I was looking through your, your book. It's like just taking, taking attention off of, um, you know, worry or stress and then placing the mind, the attention on that, you know, which brings relaxation, which brings pleasure or joy and enhancing that experience. Um, you know, one of the practices, for example, that you recommended is to is to look for beauty. Um, and that's one of my favorites. <laughs> I like that one. I, I, it, it, it's really important to me. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure why. I think it actually was a value of my mother's. You know, I can remember my mother, um, you know, doing simple things like um, uh, bringing flowers into the house. You know, maybe she would float a, a dahlia in a bowl of water. 
And, uh, it was just a simple thing, but it just, when, you know, the attention would go to that beautiful flower there on the kitchen table, um, very different than, um, you know, looking at something that disturbs the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, to build on your point about seeking the good, uh, you know, I think out of kindness to ourselves, we really told the truth. And, and it's funny, if we related to what the poet Mary Oliver has called the soft animal of the body, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us would feel, that poor little animal is tired, you know, <laughs> and frazzled. And, uh, you know, if you think of it in a way, metaphorically, and this metaphor can be way too overblown, but as a metaphor, it's kind of helpful. You know, the brain evolved basically in three stages, brainstem, subcortex, cortex, which loosely relate to the reptile, mammal, and primate human stages of evolution. Or to make it concrete, inside each one of us is a little lizard, a little mouse, and a little monkey. And those little critters inside us, they're freaking out. You know, the lizard is really scared. You know, the mouse is really hungry. And the uh, the little monkey is really lonely and all that. And, you know, the, the lizard needs petting and soothing and calming. You know, we got to feed the mouse and we got to hug the monkey. And so uh, one way to do that, of course, is to find beauty. Uh, another practice in the book is to take pleasure, as you know. Uh, another one is to, um, I'm gonna, I forget the exact wording I had, but basically see the good in yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, to realize that while you're not a perfect person, because no one is a perfect person, except maybe some saints, um, you're a good person deep down inside. You have good intentions, you have virtues, you have good heart, you've done the best you could. You're a good person. And letting that sink in doesn't make you conceited, Paradoxically, because you feed that longing inside that psychologists call the the need for normal, healthy, narcissistic supplies of feeling valued and seen and appreciated by other people. Well, if you feed that longing inside, you know, if you hug that monkey in that particular way, well, the monkey calms down and it doesn't get uh, aggressive or, or egoic or grandiose about wanting to get puffed up, you know, by other people. Mm-hmm. So. It's funny, I had a guru myself for some time, and one of his lines was, um, uh, only people of pleasure shall know the truth. And he meant something deep there, not that we should crave hedonism in the classic you know, Western model, uh, but rather that by deeply orienting to that which is the greatest pleasure. You know, the Buddha had a line, wisdom is choosing a greater happiness over a lesser one. In mm-hmm. other words, by choosing the greater happiness, the, the greater pleasure, uh, we come home to our true nature, and we also cause less trouble for other people. Mm, and that, and that choosing greater happiness is is really, I think, an excellent um, definition of self discipline. Um, you know, I, I I have often uh, offered the definition of of self discipline as doing what pleases the soul. You know, doing what pleases your uh, higher self. And, um, you know, when we begin to think of these kinds of practices in that way, um, I think it's really helpful. You know, otherwise it can be just like one more thing that we have to do. <laughs> so the, the idea of coming to live in such a way that um, you're bringing more joy, more pleasure, or you're connecting, you know, with your own innate joy. That's what we would say in yoga, that, you know, the, that there is joy within us, there is peace within us. And um, what we're doing with these practices is arranging conditions uh, so that we can, we can experience that. Um, you know, when you were talking about uh, the ego, uh, there for a moment, I was thinking, you know, there's the, the idea in spiritual practice that we, that the ego is bad, you know, we need to get rid of it. But, you know, the ego is really a viewpoint, you know, it's a tool that we need for being able to relate to others <laughs> and to be in the world. And, um, so what we really need is a healthy ego. And, uh, that's what I was thinking as you were describing, you know, um, coming to appreciate ourselves and having a healthy sense of self, um, not a narcissistic sense, but in a way to have um, mm-hmm. 
you know, well, really just a healthy sense of self so that we can um, be balanced and yeah. we're not overly um, needy um, and are reactive. And so having a healthy ego is really, I think, part of um, spiritual practice and part of, you know, and, and not to identify ourselves with that, but to know that it's a tool and that it needs to be healthy in order to work well. Right, right. I think where it gets in a way tricky and and deep and well I'll just make a quick comment here and you can decide if you want to pursue it or not but it's uh, I actually I think one of the practices in the book was don't take life personally Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and uh, that's one of my favorites because as we all know um, when we kind of go through life and with a quality of, of a lot of openness and we see that we're just basically participating in this vast process you know this vast stream of causes as it were we're we are a particular wave uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, looking around at other waves, feeling special. Uh, but really, it's the whole ocean waving its way through us. Okay. When we live life in that way, uh, while taking good care of what this particular wave needs, you know, paying the power bills, keeping the lights on, uh, brushing the, that wave's teeth, as it were, and so forth, well, uh, then we relax. But if we get all huffy and uh, righteous about our particular wave and very attached to our own views or driven around our own desires, yeah, we suffer and we create harm for ourselves and other people. Um, the trick, I think, is to appreciate that the brain, to use this metaphor again, although it's true, is a network. It's a vastly distributed network. I mean, just kind of quickly, in, inside your head, there are 1.1 trillion, trillion cells. or so, 100 billion, are neurons that make about 5,000 connections each on average with other neurons, giving us a network inside the head right now that's trying to make sense of what I'm saying here that has 500 trillion little connections called synapses. You could put 5,000 of those synapses side by side in the width of a single hair, and those neurons on average are firing about 5 to 50 times a second. Wow. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why the brain's called the enchanted loom, right? So, um, you know, in a way, the takeaway from that is to realize that, including modern studies show, you cannot find self in the brain. You cannot find ego in the brain. You can find centers in the brain that do language processing. You can find centers in the brain that literally, if people want to do this right now, wiggle their right little finger. There's a place in your brain that controlled the wiggling of that little finger and the sensations of it. But but the sense of I, the sense of being a, an entity, uh, a one who is looking out through the eyes, you cannot find that anywhere in the brain. And, and, it's, and those functions, if you will, that we call I are really, the I is much more like a village uh, with probably 100 characters, including some lizards, mice, mice and monkeys. And, uh, you know, you, that's how it is in the brain which is quite extraordinary to realize that. And it's like a symphony, you know what I mean? It's an orchestra. The ego mm-hmm. is an orchestra, you know, and there's actually no conductor. It's mm-hmm. just a process unfolding. Now, there might be an ultimate uh, kind of um, transcendental aspect to all this, but at least at the level of inside the framework of Western science, uh, you cannot find a conductor of the symphony uh, in anywhere inside the brain. And that has <laughs> huge because, implications. Well, yeah, because the conductor is looking, right? <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, they can't even find the, someone is looking. <laughs> Honestly, it, it, you know, a lot of brain science is not useful. You know, it's, it's cool, but it's yeah. not useful. But when you see these MRI scans where they take, where they accumulate, you know, dozens of studies where that looked at, that had people inside the scanner and MRI do some kind of seemingly egoic activity or, or ego function activity like declare a powerful view on a moral question like abortion or capital punishment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or pull up a personal memory or uh, pick your own face out of a collection of photographs of different people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, or anything like that. And then you find that the parts of the brain that are engaged with those seemingly ego-related activities are all over the whole brain. And the parts of the brain that are doing those ego-related activities also do 20 other things. Mm. Ego is not special. You know? so, mm. And that can take us to a kind of deep 
wisdom internally where of just simply not privileging our own point of view. In other words, the sense of ego, the sense of being an I, it's a natural phenomenon. It helped our ancestors survive. Okay. Um, But it's just one more content in the stream of consciousness. No more special than a sight, a sound, taste, touch, smell, or desire, or memory, or wish, or idea, or anything. It's just more mental content. And Mm -hmm. when we don't identify with it, things go well. But if we identify with it and take things personally, that's when trouble begins. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's how yoga um, teaches, you know, what ego is as a, as a basically a construct of the mind itself. Um, but I'm curious, you know, listening to you describing uh, segments of, of the brain and no particular place for this, you know, sense of self in the brain. How does that relate, if you can answer this, how does it relate to studies where they've shown you know, highly efficient meditators, um, and and a, a quieting of of uh, an area of the brain that happens in meditation where the sense of individual self is dissolved. Um, oh, this is good because <laughs> <laughs> it gets really practical. Yeah, yeah. How much time do I have before we take the next break? Uh, you have about two minutes. Perfect. So. Really fast. Okay. Ready? Okay. All right. Basically, think network in the middle of your head on the top versus networks on the side, mostly on the right side for right-handed people. Bottom line, when you're doing, when you're either daydreaming or you're focused on a task, networks light up in the middle of, of the skull. Okay. On the other hand, when you're in open, spacious awareness, when you're kind of opened out into allness, as it were, even in a very kind of relaxed, mellow sense, not a mystical sense, Networks light up on the right side of your brain, especially. A way into that is to take a panoramic view, a bird's eye view, because that also activates those right side lateral on the side networks. These are tricks. They're good tricks. Or be aware of the body as a whole or the sense of breathing as a whole, because that's gestalt awareness. Awareness of holes also activates those lateral right-sided networks. Or um, allow your... Um, experience to flow without trying to make sense of it or control it, direct it, or connect any part of it. Now, interestingly, each one of the three things I said is a standard yoga practice, right? But what's happening now is we're beginning to understand the underlying why. We've gone under the hood, as it were, inside the brain. But those three things, bird's eye view, you know, spacious, open perspective, two, uh, a sense of the body as a whole, and three, uh, not connecting things, they all work. We're you're listening to the Yoga Hour with special guest Dr. Rick Hansen. His website is rickhansen.net. We'll be right back with you. Hi, this is Ellen Devonport. The Five Principles was my first book, and here's what I've learned as an author. It's nice to sell a lot of books, but it's truly gratifying to know the book is being read, used, and studied in churches and small groups in the U.S. and beyond. And I get a real kick out of hearing that someone gave The Five Principles to friends who aren't in unity. Because The Five Principles are universal spiritual laws. They operate in everyone's life, whether they know it or not. They've been discovered and rediscovered by spiritual masters for thousands of years. God is all there is. We are expressions of God. We create our experience with the power of our thoughts. We align ourselves with the well-being of the universe through prayer and meditation. And we live the truth we know every day in every decision. Just five principles. They cover it all. Buy the book at unity.org. Stop feeding your problems by calling them problems. Whether you have issues with weight, finances, relationships, or any other area of your life, your perception that you have a problem is the most significant roadblock to transforming your life. Join renowned author and transformational coach, 
Freeman Michaels live every Monday at 4 p.m. Central for his remarkable new show, It's Not a Problem, It's a Pattern, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien. If you have a question, please submit it via email at yogahour at unity.fm and we will respond. Now, back to the Yoga Hour. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Ellen Grace O'Brien, and my guest today is Rick Hansen, author of Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. Um, we've been talking about, of course, this um, brain-mind connection and our ability to um, create uh, a more positive uh, experience of well-being, uh, greater health and wellness through changing our perspectives with various practices and uh, just before the break we were we were talking about well Rick was talking about the structure of the brain and um, how some of the things that we can do uh, intentionally can um, uh, fire up different parts of the brain and um, during the break, we were chatting a little bit, just the two of us, about our, how our orientation towards doing, 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 and more doing in our culture is affecting the brain and our ability um, to just be. So I was so interested in that. And uh, Rick, I'd like to ask you to just start there with this last segment about what is being and doing um, have to do with the brain and why is it important that we learn that and um, work with it? Mm, sure. Well, to go back to that thing I said at warp speed just before the break about the <laughs> midline networks, you know, like a super highway right down the, yep. like a mohawk, sort of a neural mohawk, like a strip or stripe right down the middle of your head toward the top, and then networks on the side. Well, the ones in the middle handle doing, broadly defined, task-oriented, planning, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, and they're saturated with a sense of me, myself, and I. Okay. These lateral networks are involved in big picture, being in the moment, um, not knowing in a healthy sense, not duh, but just don't know, um, a kind of openness, uh, a spaciousness. That's really the being mode. And we need to do both, doing and being. But if you think about it, because in the famous saying in neuroscience, quote, neurons that fire together, wire together. In other words, our experiences are continually changing our brain for better or worse. If you do a ton of doing-type activities, you're going to stimulate and therefore strengthen the neural networks that do doing, which is to say in that midline at the top of your head. And modern life, starting in a conventional school uh, at first grade, you know, if not kindergarten, let alone corporate cubicle jobs, multitasking, go, 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 this is a culture in which doing is on steroids, right? And... Uh, the problem with that is it really trains people in doing, but where a lot of happiness is, and certainly tremendous wisdom and spiritual practice fundamentally, uh, is largely in the realm of being. So it's a cautionary tale. It makes the point that it's important to both be careful about overdoing, and I should listen to my own advice here because I'm a major doer, and also, really importantly, to cultivate being even being while doing. In other words, while doing the dishes or brushing a child's hair or writing emails or working on a spreadsheet, one can open into a sense of being, which is the container then of the doing because we need to get the job done, let's say. Um, so anyway, the more, we, the more we be, the better. I'll just put it like that. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a few people, I think, who need to get better at doing. You know, they can't tie mm-hmm. their shoes or balance their checkbook. Okay. But most of us, especially in this culture, our weak suit, as it were, uh, is uh, in the being realm, and that's where we could really focus our practice. Mm, and I think, um, as I was hearing you describe this, I was thinking of the, um, you know, long-term uh, goal of um, 
of many with a universal outlook sort of to bring together East and West, you know, the best of the East and the West. Certainly in our tradition, Paramahansa Yogananda had that goal. And um, in some ways it had to do with that very orientation that, um, you know, the West has such an orientation um, towards doing um, and the East um an orientation towards being. Now, of course, that's changing today, and uh, the West has been strong in exporting our doing <laughs> orientation, and um, and and more and more, I think um, we're taking on this influence um, from the East through our meditative practices, and it's a good thing that we can practice being while doing. You know, um, the spiritual teachings in yoga tell us that we we can't we can't avoid doing you, you know it's just not possible if you're going to be in a body then you have to do so it, really what we can do then is to be more skillful about how we do what we do so what would you say in terms of you know the kinds of practices that you've offered in your book about how can we become more skillful um at being <laughs> even while we're doing so what's the key to that yeah uh I think different things work for different people. Uh, there's what we do on stage and off stage. Off stage, by practicing and deepening and uh, building up the neural circuits of your capacity to be, uh, to remain in a state of spacious awareness, even while uh, the oatmeal's flying, uh, deepening and strengthening that muscle, as it were, then helps uh, you stay there when you're, quote-unquote, on stage. So that would be point one. Whatever your personal practices are, uh, as they say in the gym, what's the most important exercise? It's the one you will actually do. So whatever your personal practices are that you will do off stage, those are good ones to do and make a commitment to them. Okay. On stage, I think it helps to do little tricks like literally look up and, uh, for example, look at the upper corner of the room, you know, where the walls meet the ceiling, uh, as far away from you as possible in your field of vision. Just kind of pull your head out of a very um, self-referential kind of perspective that's zeroed in on the task right in front of you. That really helps. Another is to feel your body as a whole. Come back to the body again and again and again, 10,000 times. You know, come back to the felt sense of breathing. That will also give you a big picture container, you know, for what you're doing. Um, I sometimes imagine that um, a camera is recording what's happening and I'm, that the recording's going to be played at my kid's wedding or something. So <laughs> it helps me, you know, not be too much of a jerk in the moment and kind of try to keep the big picture in mind. Um, I think the last thing is, to the extent that it's real for you, and we haven't really gone here, but I'm going to go here right now. If it's real for you and you have any sense at all of fill in the blank, the transcendental, the divine, God, Spirit, cosmic consciousness, um, you know, Brahma, uh, the unconditioned uh, in Buddhist language, the deathless in Buddhist language, uh, Dharmakaya in Buddhist language, whatever that is. If you have any sense of that, whoosh, that's the ultimate container. Mm, I'll say the last one, you know. I really do myself in my own practice these days. I just keep engaging again and again in Little, there's a saying, you know, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So we have these little moments, and they're, they're like a second or less long, but a lot of little moments add up to something big. So I try to have repeated moments where I suddenly I'll have this sense that what's really the case is not this isolated wave, as it were, in the whole ocean, but rather the whole sea. What's happening is the whole ocean waving through this particular swell that has my name tag on it in this moment in time. And mm-hmm. that sense re- renewed repeatedly over the course of a day and little second-long instance, if not 10 seconds long, um, can really be helpful to a person. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. It's such a beautiful description, and and um, I've enjoyed the whole conversation, and um, I'm hoping that listeners have too and, and receive some really good practical information. But but also um, inspiration for how simple it can be to just, um, as you say, uh, do one thing um, that can alter uh, your thoughts, um, that can change the condition patterns in the brain and get that positive uh, feedback loop going. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Rick. I uh, really appreciate you being here. 
Oh, it was a pleasure, Ellen, and, and hopefully useful, and best wishes to people listening. Thank you. Um, I want to let the listeners know again about your um, books, and uh, the, this new one that we've been looking at is just one thing, developing a Buddha brain one simple practice at a time. And Rick's website is rickhanson, H-A-N-S-O-N dot net. And there you'll find his um, teaching schedule and also some uh, very good resources. Uh, I want to invite you to come back next week. We have a very special guest next week is um, Pandit uh, Vamadeva Vedacharya David Frawley, who has a new book out on Soma in Yoga and Ayurveda, The Power of Rejuvenation and Immortality, a very intriguing work and um, very thorough. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. For information about our upcoming Kriya Yoga Immersion Week or Summer Yoga and uh, Meditation Retreat for Women and other programs at uh, CSE, visit our website, csecenter.org. I look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, remember to let your inner light shine into the world and to share your peace and your joy with all that you meet bye now thank you for tuning in to the yoga hour living the eternal way with reverend ellen grace o'brien join us every thursday morning at 10 central 8 a.m pacific for practical purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day the yoga hour living the eternal way only on unity fm the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization, www.csecenter.org. Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find Inspiration only takes a moment. Take a moment now to reflect on these words from Reverend Joan Gattuso. According to an ancient Hindu teaching, if you can only speak the truth and tell no lies, either minuscule or outrageous, for 12 consecutive years, you can attain enlightenment. A noble being will always tell the truth. Do you? Begin now with the first step of simply noticing if you do tell the truth immediately or if your first instinct is to alter the facts a bit. Resolve to be honest with yourself and others starting today. And after 4,383 days, you just may become enlightened. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Are you ready for the next steps on your spiritual path? If you are, you won't want to miss the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. Essential insights and practices from the ancient yoga science of self-realization show us how to live healthier, happier, more balanced lives. The benefits of spiritually conscious living start now. For a time-tested method to live with purpose and realize your infinite potential, 
Tune in to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Reverend Ellen Grace O'Brien, every Thursday morning at 10 Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, only on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 